Hey everyone, welcome to the State of Demand Gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types, events, interviews, Demand Gen Live, when I'm a guest on a podcast, LinkedIn content, all here in audio format. If you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to sign up for the Demand Gen Live sessions that I'm putting together with Gatano Denardi at 7.30 p.m., 4.30 Pacific on Tuesday evenings. Tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. Thank you so much for joining me for Winning Wednesday. And I love your setup. It looks very official. <laughs> yeah, I've been um, ever since uh, we've kind of been stuck in place. I used to be on the couch over there with AirPods and have transitioned to mainly audio, to be honest. So a lot of our content pushing out lately has been like Zoom recordings like this. And then we push it out with audio just because of um, the Zoom quality production for a LinkedIn format. It's just not not what I want to do anymore. I see a lot of them. And I just think that it's kind of like gets drowned out in the feed. And the audio's... Tr- um, kind of like format that we've been doing has been working really well. Yeah, I do like your setup. I think I pinged you about that as well. Just the fact that you use whatever, um, I don't know, app, I guess, for making your podcast and making them visual and just like nice little sound bites. Yeah, there's a there's an app called Wave. I think it's W-A-A-V, which does essentially what we do. We use Adobe Premiere, Adobe After Effects and Photoshop all put together to create oh. ours. Um, but there's like some lightweight SaaS tools that can kind of get you pretty close, but we started to continue to like iterate on the background design and keep that fresh. So, um, and we're also, I have a, I have a hunch that, um, large companies that have 2000 videos sitting on their, you know, Wistia or YouTube are eventually going to figure out that they should break those up and put them on social. And when they decide that we will be ready to, uh, to help them. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I didn't realize that's something that you and your company created yourselves. So that's fantastic. Because mm-hmm. If you're creating it to your point, I mean, then you're the one that people are going to go to and that's from you building at that point. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if it's, uh, um, it could end up being not a very profitable business segment. So, and if that's the case, then that's not really where, uh, where we want to play. Like we, um, most companies use us for our IP. Like we help and we, we execute services, but how we do it and the strategy behind it is I think where companies get the most value. Yeah. And I've actually watched a few of your interviews post you committing to your time today. And I noticed that you actually present yourself in a way that's very agile and pivotable. If that's even a word now, um, where you're, you know, willing and able to change the direction of your company and go in a different direction compared to what most marketers are doing in your space. So how do you feel that that actually helps and sets you guys apart? Yeah. I mean, the way that we've been thinking about it recently is that we are a channel agnostic growth partner. So we're continuously testing and updating the strategies based on what works best today. And so still to this day, I've been doing it for five years. Facebook ads for B2B for most targeting is the best thing to do. Most companies do not do that. And so we continue to run that play. And as long as that play works, we're going to continue to run it. Um, And over time, we've added you know, new things to the mix. LinkedIn organic is a huge one. We do some consulting on that. YouTube pre-roll ads retargeted based on Google search is working really well. We're currently experimenting with um, those micro events that you probably saw a couple of videos on. So I think that's a much better strategy than a building a trade show booth. And you could do five of those events for the same cost of a 20 by 20 trade show booth and get five times the content, way more engagement, just a way better overall strategy. I, in, in general, I believe the value of the event is how you create the content and amplify the event afterwards, not necessarily what happens at the event. Um, most people think about it too directly. They're like, oh, we have 50 people here and let's try and sell them something. And I'm like, let's leverage the 50 people to get good questions and then let's... Um, let's build brand for them by delivering high quality content and not trying to sell them something. And then we'll get the revenue by amplifying the content to all the rest of the world at much more scale. Um, so we're experimenting with that. We have that process pretty locked in when we figure it out and some company wants to pivot from their $2 million trade show budget per year and do something like that. Then we'll be ready to show them how to do that. We're, uh, experimenting pretty hard with, uh, with podcasts or doing something like this and then take ripping the audio and putting it up for a podcast and a YouTube channel. 
and some like more detailed ad um, executions like uh, LinkedIn has a beta running right now for um, kind of like a drift bot, but in a LinkedIn ad, they call it conversational and beta. And so we're testing things like that for, uh, for clients as well. That's great. And in terms of events, what type of events did you used to do that are different now based on the fact that we're all in shelter? <laughs> Yeah, so the the event strategy is on hold. Um, that that strategy is a micro event in a major city, partnered with a non competitive thought leader. So typically, that ends up being like either a well known CMO or a well known CRO or sales leader. And we invite executive revenue leaders, sales and marketing, and we um, create content for two hours, high production film, um, and then we get the ninety minute long form video that goes out. And we put and then we break that down and put those on different channels. We take the audio of the 90 minute clip, which goes to a podcast. We put it on YouTube. We put it on our website. We send it up by email. We break it down for social. Um, and an interesting additional thing that I hadn't, I hadn't recognized when I started doing this, but now we're starting to see is that there's a ton of value with the person, the guest that you invite and how they pre promote the event and how they take, we package the content for them. So Justin says something super smart. I give him a two minute clip. And then if he wants to, he can post it on LinkedIn. He's got 30,000 followers and that brings a lot of awareness to us. And so um, I believe that that execution, when we can do them, is the best execution in B2B digital marketing for all those different, because of how much um, scale you get with the asset afterwards. Yeah, I love that. And one of the questions that I had sent over to you is based on my specific space within B2B, which is acquisition sales. And my teammates and I, we all have a specific deck that we receive. So we're only responsible for, let's say, 70 account names. And we can't really venture outside of that because of territory issues. And we're not true acquisition in the sense we don't get a zip code and then go hunting. But we do have a hunting responsibility because our customers don't currently spend with us and their obligations with other vendors, maybe they're in a contract or they just had a bad experience or whatever the case is. So in terms of that, how can you leverage LinkedIn or how can you market to your customers more effectively? So I've always, especially when you have a well-defined list of people, I love the idea of going to those 70 accounts and creating a podcast about what they care about and calling it something nice so that they would feel um, honored to be on it. I don't know what it is, but like the CMO podcast, if you're trying to sell to CMO, sounds like a good idea, right? And so um, I would do that. And then I would go and talk to all 70 of the exact ideal customer profile in a non-sales situation and interview them, which then obviously brings awareness to you. Um, and then I would uh, reproduce and repurpose that content and send it to the other 69 people. Yeah. I might not be able to share that tip. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. That's that. I mean, a lot of companies are running ABM, which is basically account based outbound sales is the way that I see it. Right. And, uh, I, what I just laid out, I believe would just be a much more effective, much more simple, less tech driven, more personal way to yeah. do that exact same thing and get a different out. I think it I think you would get a better outcome. Definitely. And it takes care of all the issues of the fact that my companies are from different verticals. So they're not all one type of brand, but they're all in the IT department is my ideal customer. So mm -hmm. that it's probably ideal. Yeah. I mean, IT department and there's probably other, um, you know, traits that are consistent about them that you could leverage. Yeah, definitely. That's a great tip. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I owe you now. Um, oh, and can you actually, so we jumped like right into a lot of business stuff, but can you just tell me um, a little bit about yourself for people that wouldn't know? And I mentioned to you also, um, I don't know if you're from Worcester or not, but you went to Polytech up there and I have family up in that area. So <laughs> yeah, so um, I did go to WPI. I studied uh, biomedical and electrical computer engineering there. I thought I was going to design medical devices when I got out of college. And I did that for three months. And there was two things that I realized. One is that I wasn't very good at that. And two was that I was much more interested in the customer than the technology and how the, how the technology made a difference for the customer. And so I moved quickly into product management, upstream product management, figuring out what product to build in the future, what features to add, um, how the user interface and experience should go, um, how the product should be positioned relative to competitors, how we should price it. That's, how, that's where I started my career. 
And then I moved into uh, the venture back world in like 2015 um, in a complete downstream comms role. So the company had a product launch. It was medical device regulated. So they were not like releasing features every month, like a SaaS organization, the product was there. If you make any changes, you got, it has to go back through FDA. And so once you release a product, it's pretty much on the market for the next five to eight years. And so the product was out there. Um, it was a hundred percent outbound sales company, about 25 million. When I started, I'd raised a lot of money and I just looked at it and I was like, um, this is really inefficient. Like we're selling a product, um, on average, probably 50 to hundred K ACV. And like our sales cycles are 210 days. We're winning at 7%. We have SDRs calling in to, to accounts. Reps are driving four hours to do a demo at a hospital with someone that's not even interested. Um, it's very inefficient. Uh, and then if you calculate it at a customer acquisition cost, you would really see how bad it is. Um, and so then I, uh, I started building a demand gen function in a company that didn't know how. And so I followed the HubSpot guidelines. I follow, I've read books. I learned things. I tried things. But the thing was that like I wasn't told what to do. And so I would do something like run an ebook and then have them download it with paid social and then go through a nurture stream and then look at the data and be like, wow, this doesn't work. And I would repeat it in five different ways and figure the same thing out. And now five years later, I still go into companies and see the exact same process happening and see the exact same data about why it's not working and wonder why people aren't doing, aren't trying to change anything. And I think the reason is because one is the metrics that they're scored on, but two, probably because they, um, they are not sure about what is a better way and they might not have the flexibility to deviate from that strategy because of their metrics to go and find something better. And so I had the luxury at this company of deeming that having the choice to say, I don't think this is working. I'm going to pivot and do something different. And so what I did instead was I started using paid Facebook, predominantly job title targeted field of study targeted to distribute information to clinicians. This clinical trial came out. Um, this new feature came out that'll help you do X, Y, and Z. Um, this, you know, we just partnered with this company and now the product's compatible with this tool that you use as well. And just by giving the people the information, I found that a lot more people were educated. We had, um, augmented our outbounds, our outbound channels were doing better which was really interesting. And then our inbound channels were incredible. So from 210 days, our inbound channel was running 57 day sales cycle, same similar average deal size, win rates were three to five times higher. Um, reps were very excited when I passed them a lead because they knew they were going to close fast and it was going to help them hit quota and that they had a high probability to win it. And they, the people that they were going to go do the demo for were excited to see them. And you just look at these things and it's like, wow, like, being buyer centric and helping people make their own choices seems to make a lot of sense. And then I ran that play for a while. It worked, it worked really well. I still continue to run it and then started moving into, um, so that's short form content for paid. And then I added on another layer, which is long form content, um, distributed in organic channels, um, which worked really well at building brand, brand affinity, thought leadership. And over time, as you build that channel, we'll lower your customer acquisition costs and be less reliant on the paid channels. Um, and so I saw all of those different things work together. I looked out in the world and realized that everyone was doing it the way that I tried first that wasn't working and decided that I would uh, go on a mission to try and help companies change the way they do demand generation. And the vision for this, and a lot of things that I see, is that right now companies, this is a generalization, but a lot of companies, whether they'll admit it or not, are seller-centric. When it comes into the last week of the quarter and they're behind plan, they go into full seller-centric mode. And they'll tell themselves that they're buyer-centric and customer-centric, but when it comes down to it, their actions don't map to that. And so, um, I've had a, uh, a vision where basically the current demand gen model is drive as many leads as possible, filter them through an SDR layer. And then the ones that get through go to account executives. And even the ones that get through because the volume is so high and the quality is so low that the ones that the account executives get are actually even not that good anyway. And so, and then through that process, you're doing things to create the volume of leads, which is not buyer centric, like following up on people that attended a webinar to learn and all of a sudden you have them in a sales cadence or downloading an ebook to learn and all of a sudden you have them in a sales cadence 
or all of these different actions that have no buying intent and you're pretending that they do so that you can try and sell them something. And, uh, and so by changing something around, which is that by giving people information, you don't need as many leads because the ones that you're getting are good and actually close. And so you actually get more revenue with significantly less leads because the quality of the leads is much better when the quality of the leads gets to somewhere between, I would say above 50% qual. Uh, qualified leads come in and move to an opportunity, you can remove the SDR triage layer. Those SDRs will then go outbound at target accounts. The inbound high quality leads will go directly to AEs, which creates a better buying experience. And I've done this experiment at three companies. If you pass inbound leads that are high quality demo requests, sales conversions directly to account executives, your win rates are better and your revenue is higher because it creates a better buying experience. And so then if you do that, the SDRs will start to go outbound. It will then expose that that channel is ineffective relative to the inbound demand gen channel. You'll start to shrink the SDR team to siphon money and put it back into the marketing and demand gen. Your customer acquisition costs will go down. It'll allow you to invest more in product and success. And that vision that I have like changes a company from a, a very inefficient sales-led company that's spending having poor marketing ROI and move them to a, you know, brand led product led type of company. So what's the plan in terms of how to qualify your customers the most effective way? Because um, you mentioned the fact that we get pushed these false leads that really aren't generated into any type of sales mentality. Like the customer's not in that, in that buying frame of mind. They're just looking for more information people always hold information close to the chest because they're afraid if they give it out, the customer won't actually buy from them at the end of the day. And then in terms of qualifying leads, there's a role and we don't call them SDRs in my company, but um, at Verizon, we don't call them that. But similar function, right? Yeah. yeah. Like there's a team that will send you a gold lead and it's not necessarily even a bronze lead. Like it's mm-hmm. a person's contact info that I could have found in a Google search and there's no content behind even what the outreach should be focused on. So mm-hmm. in terms of, since we are so responsible for that qualification process, what are you doing that's different in terms of qualifying your customers and making the leads more valuable? Yeah, it's really interesting. When, when you wait for a inbound sales conversion, most, most often people have already qualified themselves in. So unless a a lot of companies will do this incorrectly, which is that they'll pay to drive traffic to a landing page to funnel people into a sales conversion, which by design will create lower quality. And so all of my uh, executions, all the, the executions that we do at the company are built around distributing information and letting people come back when they want. And so when they come back, like we've distributed three blogs, this clinical trial came out, we have this new product, this new extension happened, all these different things solve your problems they've seen the brand in social five, seven, 20, 90 times they go into Google and they search either the category of your product or ideally your brand name. If it's done well, they'll go on, they'll read the value proposition on the homepage. They'll click get a demo. And that is the action that you actually want to have happen, which is a last touch from a last touch attribution standpoint. It would be a organic or direct traffic or paid branded search sales conversion. Okay. And from there, you might have like, like I said, 50% qualified, like at every company we do that with after a period of somewhere around 90 days, more than 50% of the people are direct ICP and are ready to buy. And so I would rather, if I was going to have to send leads directly to account executive, have that profile, than have 10 times as many leads and significantly lower quality. Like what you find, what I found always is even if you try and scale the amount of leads, the amount of quality leads stays about the same. It's just that you have more for the sake of more, but it doesn't actually help you get more revenue. It just creates more activity and the, the, uh, the facade that you're actually doing more, but you're not. Yeah. And it's actually creating more work as well because if you do pass those off and I think you've spoken about this too, but if you pass it off to a sales rep, and you give them a hundred leads, but only two percent are actually good. But they have to find which two percent are good. The next time around, they're not even going to do that amount of work, you know. 
Yeah. And that's why I would say that most companies have sales and marketing alignment issues is because their marketing team is aligned on something that doesn't align with what the sales team needs. And so, and no one told me to do it that way. But when I built this engine, I, all I thought about was when I send this to a rep, I'm not going to have them send me an email back saying this person doesn't work at a hospital. We can't sell to them. Why are you doing this to me? That was all. And so I do like, it's, it seems so basic to me that I'm only going to give them people. And I went through and scanned them myself before we had the, the um, integration run in Salesforce and it actually poured it into an opportunity is I would go through and I would scan the lead sales conversion. They came in, are they in the ICP map, the hospital, blah, 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 which rep should it go to? And I did that myself. And I would have that processed in the first five minutes because I was incentivized to do so. And I knew that following up with a customer was important from a buying experience. And so um, that's the way that I did it. And then over time you find like, once you get to a quality level that you can run automation and run those processes by themselves. But that's how I, that's how I thought about it was just putting myself in their shoes. And I was like, okay, if I send Brandon 10 bad leads, what's the likelihood that he's going to, follow up the 11th one that I send him. Great. And what do you attribute to um, your enthusiasm around taking risk? And how did you find a company that embraced that? Um, I was in a company that um, I'm, and I'm very grateful for was open to trying new things to grow. And so, um, and I think that w- it, it forced me in a lot of time because it was a very sales driven organization. And I think that's, I actually attribute my ability to communicate now to that experience because it forced me to figure out how to convince a CEO that had built and sold two companies that were more than $500 million exits about how to do it a different way. And so I, it took me a long time to be like, okay, these are the metrics that we're measuring on. I'm not measuring on cost per click. When I'm reporting to the CEO, I'm reporting on qualified pipeline and I'm reporting on revenue and that's how I'm going to get more budget. And that's how I'm going to be able to do these things. And that's how I'm going to be able to go and film that $10,000 video because I know next month I can use that video, send it out by an email and then report on the million dollar plus pipeline that we generated off the campaigns from that piece. And so that was just, uh, I think that being able to, look at things and challenge what's happening right now and identify ways that it might be better. Also with a really tight, um, focus on the customer. So when I worked at that company for the first 90 days, I was in the field at two in the morning at hospitals, understanding what they're doing in the ICU at two in the morning and almost no marketer would do that. And my content would not have worked that I was creating. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have known what to write. I wouldn't have known what to put in the second paragraph. I wouldn't have known who to go and interview. I wouldn't have known what questions to ask them. I wouldn't have known different targeting mechanisms to get to them. When they asked a question on web chat, I wouldn't have known how to answer it. And so the really interesting thing that I got out of it was that it wasn't like I was doing SEO I was building a demand gen function. I scanned the leads. I answered the web chat. I did the community management when a hundred people commented on our Facebook ad. And so I figured out all those different layers. And I think that's what makes me unique. And I also think it's for people listening, why it's such a opportunity to go work in a fast growing small company, because you can learn a lot really fast if you're in the right one. Yeah, you really get your hands dirty. And I think you're entrusted with a lot more responsibility at that point because you're wearing a lot of hats as the other side, you know, when you're in a small organization. Yeah. And nobody, nobody in that organization told me to go and do that. They hired me to do sales enablement and build trade show booths. And I just looked at it and I went to our third trade show and I was like, this is not the best use of my time. And I, uh, I continue to do that job. And I also built a, a, I, I like thinking about for people, how do you go and build the job for you? Like the job that the company hired you for probably isn't the job that you should be doing. You need to get in the company and figure out what your real job should be. And that's how, that's how I feel like one, you build a career that you love. And two, you stop making these like incremental steps, waiting two years to go from manager to senior manager and start really moving your career forward by making a business impact. I love that so much. And I think so many people don't know 
either themselves well enough or what direction to go in. So are there any types of questions that are tried and true for you that you continue to ask yourself at different stages in life or do those questions change? I'm not sure that I have like a, a direct process for that. I think it's constant, like constant auditing. When I was 22, I was building e-commerce companies in my bedroom. Like I wanted to, I wanted to run companies. I've known that for a while and I was okay. Like eating dirt essentially in 20, in 2016 to learn these things, which if I didn't do those things, I would not be here. That is for certain. Um, and so I just had like a vision for it and it was at times really challenging where, you know, you're, you're making a huge business impact and the sales rep that you're sending the leads to is making four times as much money as you. Um, and I just, uh, I, I could feel that this is how it was going to play out. And so I just like stay committed to it. Um, tried to be patient, tried to learn. Like, I think if you're, if you're in your, tw in your twenties or early thirties, like the most important thing you can do is learn because you actually deploy those skills later. And that's where you see the big ROI. But most people don't spend the time developing the skills where that they, they don't see that, that very large ROI later in life. Right. The skills and even the drive that you mentioned when you're going to hospital at two in the morning, just to get really ingrained in your customer's business and how, like what their day to day looks like. Cause I think so many times our customers feel like we don't really care about them or know what's going on from their perspective. We just know what our solution is and we keep trying to make it fit. Um, and when you go and visit your customer and it's casual and you're just learning about their life, those walls tend to come down, I think, tremendously. And you're able to ask those fluid questions and gain that insight so that, to your point, when you're answering on the forum or you know, responding on the Facebook page, you know what you're talking about and your words become more credible at that point. So. Yeah. Yeah. And to, and to clarify, it's not just customers. Like I spent a lot of time at accounts that were not customers of ours that um, I was able to, you know, come to the table with two new clinical trials and a perspective on why the outcomes were that way that helped them, which then enabled me to be able to learn from them. And so it all comes back to, and it's, it's happening to me today on LinkedIn and it's, it's happened since I started to recognize this is that a lot of opportunities present themselves when you help other people, but you can only help other people when you know what you're talking about. And so, um, I think, uh, I think a lot of, uh, I really struggle to think that you can call yourself a marketer if you don't spend time in the market. Yeah, that's such a good point. How did you uncover those opportunities, though, if they're not with your actual customers? We were selling to hospitals. There's 5,000 hospitals in the U.S. It's pretty well defined. I was in charge of the children's hospital segment. We were selling a product. There was two competitors. The top 50 children's hospitals are very well mapped out. We had, you know, whatever, 20% of those as we were growing. I was pretty clear to find the other, whatever the math is, 30 um, 30 accounts that we didn't have, um, leverage relationships that I built with people that were customers, um, leverage the relationships that the people in the, the salespeople in the field that had developed with those people. And the, the key thing is by entering the situation with no sales intent. And so I don't, I, even marketers, I don't think can be disciplined on this one, but people are not open to, to helping you if you're coming in with a hidden agenda. And so the idea of like, and I said this yesterday and a guy challenged on me and I feel very comfortable saying that I've never posted a piece of content on LinkedIn with the thought of how this is going to get me a sale. It just like, doesn't, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't phase my mind. And because I think that way, the content actually hits, it actually brings value to people which then leads to sales. But if you do it with sales intent, it actually changes the content. I see that in, in I would say most B2B companies fall into that trap. And if they were able to remove themselves from the outcome, they would actually get better outcomes. It's super counterintuitive. It really is. That's such a good point. And I think you said it well, marketers and just any salesperson in general, I think it kind of goes against our nature to go into something and, and invest our time if we don't have the sale in mind. So when you're visiting your customers' competitors, is it still not a sales-oriented 
interaction because for me I would still like even though you're trying to understand their landscape and learn about their business I would still want to have that semblance in the back of my mind of how can I present this ultimately to my customer to show them what other people are doing in their space yeah I um it's it's really hard but that's not how I approached it um mainly because the first 10 accounts I went to I did it that way and it didn't the outcomes were not right like and if you so if you do it a couple times and you're like wow this isn't working I should change my approach and that was in like 2015 and I've done it ever since and it's just like if I'm if I'm going to go and see a customer as a marketer I'm there to learn or excuse me, a, a prospect, like a non-customer, um, I'm there to learn. And, and the interesting thing about kind of like how I do things, I'm not advocating for a hundred percent inbound model whatsoever. I believe that most companies should have some type of blend 50 to 65% inbound and the rest sales sourced. However, the way that I operate is a hundred percent inbound. So like if I go and visit somebody and I learn and they want to work with me, they can, they know where to find me. Right. And so I think it's a, it's a really interesting kind of like mindset. Um, and I'm also really interested in showing people over time that you can build a substantial business without having a huge sales team. Like when I started this company, people told me to, uh, hire an outbound salesperson as my first hire. They told me, and then, um, instead, instead of that, I hired a videographer. And I produced content. Um, and in 10 months, we went from zero, me sitting on my living room couch, we went from $0 in revenue to over a million dollar ARR in 10 months with not a single cold call, not a single email, not a dollar spent on ads. And we see consistently startups that have 10 sales headcount and can't get to that growth trajectory. And so it's just like, maybe there's a different way. Like I, I know every SaaS company that's starting up is going to hire 10 salespeople and beat their head against the wall to get to a million ARR so they can raise series A. But maybe there's a different way. Maybe your founder's an expert and all you need is one videographer and someone that can deploy that on social. And you'd probably get to a better outcome at a better valuation uh, faster. Yeah. And at the end of the day, since it's your business, you're going to take so much more care and responsibility in those interactions, whether they're being recorded or not. And you're the face of your company. So that kind of answers a lot of questions that I was having in terms of how you're able to find that balance between being the CEO, which is, you know, this professional title where people are kind of, they feel maybe they need to have a standoffish demeanor and then you're very present and mobile online. But if that's been your trend over the years, and that's been what's been successful for you in terms of the fact that you basically show what it is that you offer, and then you let those customers come to your team who will then facilitate those conversations. So you don't need to duplicate yourself in the field. You just duplicate your videos basically and show it on different streams. Yeah, it's incredibly more scalable. Um, it's also more buyer centric. And so, um, I just over time have learned based on looking at data and talking to a lot of people and studying behavior to see that that's how people want to buy. They want to consume information and they want to talk to you on their terms, not yours. And so I just empower people to take the process that they want to take. So are you teaching your teams how to do what you do or you're leading the show pretty much and then whatever comes in as a result, they handle? So um, a lot of my pe the people that work on my team um, are really smart people. I hire people out of, out of SaaS companies that have run demand gen or, or worked on a demand gen team. And so like a lot of agencies are going to hire someone directly out of college and I'm going to sell them something. And then I'm going to hand them off to a $50,000 employee that doesn't know what they're doing. That's not how we run our business. And so like I hire people that are smart and over time we will, I will empower them to produce content for their own channels, which then helps them build their brand. And a lot of companies don't want to do that because then there are a couple of things if, if they're in my seat. One, I become vulnerable to them leaving as they build a brand. Like I want people to win. Like if somebody on my team gets a hundred thousand followers and outpaces me and starts their own company, like I'm happy for them. Like they were going to win anyway. And they're going to think, they're going to think good things about me helping them get there. 
and that's going to have some type of ROI in the future. So like I, yes, I, we, I work closely with everyone on my team and kind of developing their, um, their skills and their execution mainly on LinkedIn, but in the future, probably podcasts as well, because it's good for the brand. Like, that's, that's how I see it. I feel like every company could take all of their employees and give them the tools to be successful in those, which would roll up into a lot better business results for the company. That's a really good point. When you're coming up with your content on LinkedIn and you're sharing ideas with your team of what it is that they can be implementing on as well, and you're not coming from a sales perspective, how are you creating your content and what are you basing that on? And you know, subsequently, what type of brand are they trying to create on the platform if it's not directly linked with the company? So I never think about what to create. I just go on things like these where people ask me questions and then I can demonstrate my expertise. And so I've been fascinated actually where people invite me on podcasts and people say, wow, you're the first person that hasn't wanted, hasn't wanted to do a prep call or see the questions in advance. And I'm like, I prefer to not see the questions in advance because the, uh, the answers come off more authentic. And so that's been surprising to me. Like I, uh, but to get back to your question, we, we create, I send them in advance. So you didn't even look at that. That's what you're saying. Didn't, no, I never do. I just like, it's just, I don't, I don't, one, I don't have time to, I just prefer to go off the cuff. And so I don't have to, I don't think about what to create. I'm just like in a constant creation mode almost every day in this thing. We'll get 10 clips for LinkedIn. Maybe six of them will be good. Four of them won't be so good. We'll take the six clips. They'll be in a box drive by tomorrow morning. And then someone on my team edits them and then I can go in and I pick the one that I want to talk about. And there's probably, I probably have 300 in the archive right now that haven't been posted. And then I take it. And the most important thing is what, what you write with the video. And so I spend, I'm very thoughtful. I spend about 30 minutes every morning, um, writing copy because I've tested. And this is another thing that, to get into, like you always need to test. And so I've tested writing, having a video with one line of text. You should check out this video. It's super cool versus the same video with 1200 characters explaining in more depth what's talked about in the video. And the one where you write the copy works a lot better because a lot of people don't actually watch the three minute video. And so over time I've learned like those nuances that are really important. And, um, to pivot to your other question about what kind of like brand they want to portray, like it's theirs. Like they, they get to develop that. Like mine happens to be, um, some people call it, uh, challenging or antagonistic or however you want to look at it. Like it's pretty much just the truth that a lot of people see, but don't want to admit is how I frame what I, what I talk about. And they, they have the ability to create whatever brand they want to do. If they want to kind of like challenge a lot of things or if they want to just be super helpful or really nice, or those are all, I don't architect those things for them. That's, those are all their choices. Yeah, and I love that freedom that you're giving um, and speaking about as well, because there's so many memes even out there about employers that don't empower their team. And then they're stuck with these kind of unambitious, non-performing individuals versus the ones that are really investing in them. There's the chance that they might leave, but there's a higher probability that they'll stay because you're actually taking good care of them. And it's hard to find a good employer you know, who does care about the human at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, when I was an employee, if I think back, the reason that I left every single job up until this point was because I stopped learning. And so like, that was the big one for me is that eventually like you can kind of tell by how I'm talking and all those things. Like I like to innovate and move forward. And at some point at every company, it reached to a point where I couldn't innovate anymore. I'd outrun the company. And when I got to that point, I needed to leave because if I'm not learning, then it's not a good place for me. Um, and so I try and instill that in my team. I actually, like I spent time with two of my employees this morning and I asked them a question, which was, um, if you could describe the, um, the culture of the company here, cause we're spending a lot of time trying to figure that out in three, in three words, what are the first three that come to mind? And, um, and we'll continue the sample with the rest of the people. But the first two people said, the first one they, they said is that I'm learning so much so fast. I'm growing. 
And like, that is a good, a, a very good environment for retention. And so, um, if people think long-term, which some people don't, like some people, even despite learning would take a $20,000 salary bump to go somewhere else where grass is always greener potentially. And that's their individual choice. But, um, if you think long-term, and you're continuously learning. And we talked about it earlier, like you will see if you have the skills determine your ROI long-term skills and experience, not your title when you're 28. And so, um, yeah, that's how I look at it. Yeah. And that's a great indicator of your leadership too, I think. So I'm sure your team appreciates the fact that you do that. Yeah. They're all, they, they make my job a lot easier because they're all very, very, very high quality people. Yeah. And I like that you keep coming back to that. I wanted to ask you about that as well. So in terms of the fact that you've left other companies because you hit a plateau, are you more extrinsically motivated or just intrinsically motivated? always been intrinsically motivated. I think that if I really try and pinpoint it, like I played a lot of sports growing up and I think I just kind of got that motivation. And, um, for a while earlier in my life, I was like really into long distance running, which is like, you're just competing with yourself when you're at mile seven and you want to give up and you have six or seven miles to go, like you got to figure out how to get through it. And I think that's kind of like what, um, that's kind of the mentality that I bring to trying to build a business right now. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. My siblings have both run cross country, so they can definitely relate. Running is like that mental obstacle for me. And I feel like I'm personally probably more extrinsically motivated, which is why I ask that because small business owners or CEOs of their own brands and their own company have to be spurred on by something internal. And, you know, because you're leading your vision from the front. And yes, you can surround yourself with smarter people, but no one's going to care about the vision and the goal as much as you will. So keeping that momentum going, you know, I don't know if you have anything to share on that, what's worked for you and maybe how some people like me can kind of pivot in that regard. Yeah. So, um, the, I think the learning one is really interesting. I think giving people, um, a lot of space where they can have ownership over something. So I, I get some feedback from people that I'm like not clear enough about what I want them to do because I want to give them so much flexibility to, to use their brain because they're all uh, hire smart people and give them goals and let them work to it. And so I could probably be more directive, um, at, at some points and helping them steer, but like we have a vision. I think they stay motivated because I, I do believe that whenever we look back at this three or five years, like we'll have built the best demand gen firm in the U S like, I do believe that that's where we're going to get to. The process is very clear. It works way better than what's happening today. And so hiring good people, keeping them motivated on that vision, um, and just comes down to execution. I think that we will, um, look back and, and be able to fulfill that. So when you're hiring people, are you looking for intrinsically motivated individuals as well? Ones that you don't have to kind of encourage? So to speak? the, um, the way I'm not sure if I like technically look at that, but, um, what I do is first I'm looking, the first interview I'm looking for culture fit and basic skills. And so, um, when we do that over zoom, I, most of the employees I've hired over zoom, like I've never met them in person or hundred percent remote. And so I'm looking for culture fit. And then, um, the next, um, the next interview will be like detailed skills. Like, do you have the skills to do the job? And then the last piece will be that you have to do a project and it'll be open, open like very open-ended project. And that's where I'm looking for, um, like true exceeding expectations, excellence in how you deliver and present your work. Um, and every person I've hired has delivered something that is way over what I was expecting. And that is how I, that is the critical piece to the, the hiring process that I have right now and will continue to, to develop and evolve is, is that piece is that you have the skills, but that'll separate whether or not you'll, you'll be successful here. That's so great. I studied psychology in my undergrad. And one of the things that they teach you is when you put a cap on a person, then that's what they believe their limit is. So the fact that you're leaving it so open-ended and you're getting results that are exceeding your own expectations as well, that's huge. I mean, they probably didn't think that they would even be able to do that either, but 
they're trying to prove something to you. You know, they're trying to get their job in your company. So mm-hmm. it's a great approach and much better than sell me this pen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, very good. Um, so we have about 10 minutes left. I normally save this portion for any type of silver lining, either through our current pandemic that you're experiencing. I feel like we're on a bit of an upswing right now, so it might not be as applicable, but um, this could also be some type of positive mantra that you've had throughout your life, you know, that it's kind of timeless advice for you that you can share with others. Yeah, I mean, to, to really form this on like the marketing or go to market piece is that I believe that companies should have that this, this current situation is forcing companies to figure out things they should have figured out five years ago. They should have had a policy for remote work five years ago. They should have had that figured out, not been forced to do it. They should have figured out how to do digital marketing, not just run trade shows. They should have figured out how to produce content and empower their salespeople and their marketing people and their product people to produce content on LinkedIn, but they didn't. And so I think that the, the people that adapt and emerge will emerge as winners and the ones that go back to doing it the same way that they did before this, which I think there will be many, I think many will go back and continue to do the trade shows and go back into the office and do the exact same things. And I think those companies will be increasingly vulnerable over time. That's a good point. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of starstruck from what's going on based on everything you just said from a personal perspective. Do you have any advice there? Um, what specifically? Because <laughs> you tend to steer away from personal questions, I feel like. Yeah. Your answers. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, what you could share in that regard, like where it's more of a humane answer and less about business. Because not everyone watching this maybe has a job right now or is in the level of business that I feel like you and I seem to be on. Um, so... I like to just open it up where it's a little more relatable. Um, yeah. I, without offending you. Of course. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a super interesting question because honestly, like through this time, aside from not being able to go out to dinner or go to the gym that I love every morning at 6am, like my cadence of life has not changed very drastically because I believe that I was doing the things that I should have been doing anyway not the, and like our company is 100% remote. Um, we're already producing content. So some of the things that I'm talking about, I will say that like, um, I'll tell you a little bit of a funny story. So I'm like, I think it was March 7th. Um, I, I left for vacation. And at that point it wasn't that it, it was okay. Like I didn't tell anyone that I was going on vacation and they're like, Whoa, 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 coronavirus is happening. You can't go. Um, and so I left on vacation and I'm like three days into the vacation, I got a, te- a push notification on my iPhone, like the MLB is canceled. And then the next day it was like New York city shuts down all their bars and restaurants. And then the final one that I got was a push notification from an American airline saying, if you don't get out of that country in 20 in 48 hours, then they're going to shut down the airport and you're going to be stuck there indefinitely. And so I got to the airport and I left and I got home and it was very different. Um, when I got back here than when I left just six days before that. And, um, I sat down at my desk and I took it in a little bit. And then I wrote in my notebook, I said, the next 12 months can change my life. And so, and it's in the notebook. I started a new notebook and I wrote that on the first page and I wrote down some traits about the things that I wanted to exemplify during this time. Cause I think a lot of people, even I, I at times struggle a lot, like, like it's hard. Right. And I think some people, um, under that type of pressure can crack or break down or, um, you know, use it as an excuse to take some time off or not work as hard. And I kind of did the opposite and I leaned into it. Um, and I have number one thing that I did was get on a very regimented schedule. And so I wake up at the same time, I work out, take my dog for a walk, eat, do all the things. And then I kind of get into it. And so those are some of the changes I made in my, uh, in my personal life and the adjustments. And and now it, it, you know, things are kind of changing, uh, for the, you can kind of feel that they're changing for the better. And so, um, I'm excited about that. I think that this, the six or eight weeks that happened, the things that we did, is we started a live Q and A every Tuesday night, and so I have we, there's me and this guy Gatano Denardi who's super smart, um, and I really like. Every Tuesday night we have thirty to fifty 
marketers, demand gen marketers, salespeople on there. And we just help them just answer questions and try and provide value. And, and the amount of people that consistently come every week gives me a lot of fulfillment that people are learning and see so much uh, value in it that they'll come back every month, every week. And then we take that content and we create it on LinkedIn and we put it on a podcast. And, and so we did, we made that adjustment. We created a podcast, we created a YouTube channel. And so like this, um, the time that we've been stuck at home, I've just kind of used it instead of using it as a negative, I've tried to move it to a positive, which is kind of how I look at life. Yeah, I can definitely tell that just from this group interaction. So that's really awesome. And I appreciate all of your time and all of your insight. Um, is there anything else on your mind that you would want to add or share with the audience or any plug I can give you? No, this was awesome. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about all these pings and notifications. Oh, uh, don't worry. I barely noticed. Good. Uh, good. <laughs> yes. So, Could you, um, would you mind uploading this so we can rip it for LinkedIn? Yeah, not at all. You mentioned that you could share some type of drop with me. Yeah. Yeah. Let me do that. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll, just, I'll shoot you a, uh, a link right now. I know it takes a little while to download on, um, yeah, no, that's fine. Um, and as far as LinkedIn, I know that you had posted something too, uh, saying you know that you give all this free content away to the point where people could probably do it themselves, and yet they still come to you at the end of the day to for your services. So I think that that's a really great testament to the effort you know of putting in for your customers and having that buyer in mind. Yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, the strategy is simple. The execution is hard. And I just know that most people, even if they believe in the strategy, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm, uh, how do you say that? I'm not manipulating people. Um, I just know that even if I give away the framework, it's the details that matter. And most people, when they hit a sign of adversity, will give up, not try and figure it out and persevere. So yeah, that's, that's what I figured out. Yeah. Cool. Good. So I, I just, uh, I just created this box folder. I'll shoot it to you okay. in an email. I appreciate the questions. A couple of the questions I or like kind of new directions that I hadn't talked about before, which is awesome. Yeah. I was so, so much of the beginning part was like everything I had already heard you say. And I'm like, crap, I need to like get away from these topics. Yeah. 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 No, it was good. You were great. I really, I'm like so glad that we did this. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Okay.